0: This podcast includes strong language, descriptions of war and deals with issues of trauma and
1: death.
2: 6,500 weapons, 8,000 troops, and I needed some of them up because there were only about 40 of us on the hills and the Serbs were attacking in waves. If the Serbs were up there, they could simply destroy the town. That was where Richard,
0: particularly with his leadership and his company, held them off for a vital couple of hours.
3: Would every single company commander have done the same? The likelihood is not. I mean, we'd like to think so, but we were lucky we had the right man the right place.
1: What is it that drives people to be brave? To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy? I'm Darren Coventry, former soldier and now video and podcast producer at BFBS. I've been talking to men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. We talk about what happened, what they thought at the time and how they feel about it now. Welcome to tier medals, Richard Westley, OBE MC, retired colonel, veteran of many conflicts through a long military career. Thank you for coming to the podcast and first, the first and most important question how do you take your brew?
2: White nun Julie Andrews.
1: White nun and I'm really sorry we, we didn't have any coffee for you today. That's fine, <laughs> tea's good It is tea in So Richard we are obviously here to talk about one incident but firstly tell me the, about your long military career, what's the Whistle Stop Tour?
2: So, um commissioned from Sandhurst in 1984 probably before most of your listeners were born Uh, and then I progressed an infantry officer career Um, so Northern Ireland and Bosnia and yeah a few other um, discrete operations from the joint force headquarters and then I was luckily um, asked to command Worcestershire Worcestershire Insured Foresters. Having been a Royal Welsh Fusilier mm. up until that point, I took command of the uh, Worcestershire Insured Foresters, now two Mercian, and I took command of them in mazar sharif which was my second tour of Afghanistan, and then came back for some ceremonial duties and then uh, went on uh, Herrick 6 in 2007 to Helmand Province. Finished that, and then my last job in the army was commanding the Operational Training Advisory Group, So we were preparing everyone for operations in Iraq, still the Balkans, Mm. and Afghanistan, and some UN military observers for Georgia. Infantry through and through, and mainly training and operational roles. Never actually did a staff job in my 26 years, which I wear as a badge of honour. So I was very lucky,
1: and um, I have no regrets. In March 1995, 32-year-old Major Richard Westley of 1st Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers was expecting to deploy to Northern Ireland, but there was a change of plan.
2: It was quite short notice um, because we were we were slated on the arms plot to go to South Armagh, and I was on a staff job. and The commanding officer rang me up and said, "Look, I'd like you to come back as a company commander. We're not going to, to Northern Ireland now. We're going to Gorazda
1: During the Bosnian War, after the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. Gorazda was one of six Bosniak or Bosnian Muslim enclaves, surrounded and besieged by the Bosnian Serb army. In April 93, it was made into a United Nations safe area, along with the towns of Bihač, Sarajevo, Srebrenica, Tuzla and Jeppa. UN peacekeepers were sent to those towns to deter attacks on the civilian population. And the response
2: from the international community for to, to the question who wants to go to Garajda was deafening in its silence. The French, at one stage, were ready to go, and they had a convoy ready. And then the French government pulled the deployment, and, and it was looking quite difficult. The UK government and the UK MOD then said, right, we'll send people into into Garajda. So the initial deployment of the Duke of Wellington's Regiment to get in there and establish the safe area. Then there was a roulement where the uh, Royal Gloucestershire, Berkshire, and Wiltshire regiment went in. And then we were the third lot to go into to Garazda. And, and that coincided with the end of the one year right. cessation of hostilities agreement. So we trained at high intensity for that very reason. We knew the ceasefire was going to end. And I don't think any of us thought we were in for an easy tour. I'm Lieutenant General
0: Jonathan Riley. And back in 1995 uh, in Garazda, East Bosnia. I was Richard Wesley's commanding officer. Uh, he commanded B Company, one of three Royal Welsh Fusilier companies and a Ukrainian company that were based in the enclave. There was this rather odd creation of what were termed safe areas. Now, they were not safe havens. Safe havens have a very specific meaning uh, in international law and they imply complete disarmament in return for complete security. So for that to happen, the Bosnian forces in Gorazde would have had to be, had to be disarmed. And there would have had to be a large UN or NATO force put in to secure it. Neither of those two things happened. And precisely what the safe area was, nobody really ever quite was sure. Uh, The closest I came uh, to a definition was from Rupert Smith, the force commander, uh, who told me in his view that, and I quote, the safe area exists to safeguard the, the civilian population so far as is possible to do so in a war. But it had no actual legal standing. It was further complicated in Garazda itself uh, by a ceasefire agreement engineered by uh, Mr. Akashi, uh, the Secretary of General's Special Representative, who agreed with the Serbs that there would be a, an exclusion zone of three kilometres around the town from which troops would be withdrawn and an exclusion zone of, of 15 kilometres from which artillery and heavy weapons uh, would be withdrawn. Uh, so we had this um, rather odd Situation of a of a circle around the town, with the with the Serbs actually sitting right on the edge of the circle, and their heavy weapons. Well, they never cleared them out of that particular exclusion zone, uh, and there were not enough NATO or UN troops ever to enforce that uh, that agreement. Not that it was ever intended that it should be enforced, because it was a peacekeeping agreement, and therefore it was founded on consent uh, from both sides.
2: I don't think the Serbs are really interested, hmm. um, and and certainly. As we got to um, into April, attacks on us increased in ferocity and in number, and it was only a matter of time, I think, before the Serbs, you know, made a move on the eastern enclaves. Um, they'd vowed to recapture them. They'd played ball with the UN. They hadn't, in their own minds, received the recognition for their restraint, and um, they're boiling for a fight. And it was important that, that you know that we were ready for that.
1: How did we get here? What was the political and um, situation like on the ground in what what had been Yugoslavia, but now was a fragmented state of regions some of which had been recognized and were still declaring there
2: yeah well if you if you if you recall back in sort of um eighty nine ninety we saw the breakup of the Soviet hegemony mm. wall coming down in Berlin free movement, fragmentation of various states. And um, Tito had gone, and he was holding the country together. Quite so a Tito present. was the ruler of... President, yeah. yeah. yeah, And yeah, that was an opportunity for the two communities that had lived very closely together. You know, many people had married across the ethnic divide, so decide decided that they, they wanted to rule their, um, their own roosts. Yeah. And it very quickly turned into a civil war. Very rapidly, you know, and I'm not a psychologist, but psychologists tell me that sometimes the, the, the intensity of the, of the violence that ensues is an indication of how much sort of love there was in the community beforehand. And then something happens on one side, reaction, counteraction. And before you know what, you've slipped into something that had become a pretty nasty um, war involving you know, a lot of deaths and some pretty hideous crimes against humanity, mm. as we saw you know unfolding in you know, yeah. the early days when you know the cheshires and bob stewart was uh were out there so you know it, it did unfold pretty quickly and that was always in the back of our minds that if it could do that regionally it could certainly do that locally and um you know local to us was garage and the three kilometers around it
1: so let's talk about the opening days of your tour there's you are with a, um, a, was it a battle group or a battalion? I, I guess it was a more... It was a,
2: it was a battalion minus. There were, yeah. there, were, there were about two and a half companies, about 300 of us in okay. there, with um, a, a battalion headquarters. And my company took the East Bank, and my old mate Phil Jones's company took the West Bank with Martin Leader as the other company commander, really sort of controlling the town and the specialist platoons. And it was, the early days were, were classic peacekeeping, patrolling, manning observation posts that were interpositioned between the two sides getting to know the warring factions as best we could
1: and you would be speaking to both sides
2: absolutely never at the same time you know classic peacekeeping doctrine is that you know eventually you get a contact group and you get them sitting on a table and and you're the you know you're the arbiter and uh, and the impartial sort of um, guy on the ground uh, but that was never going to happen because both sides suspected they would be fighting that summer mm. So you would be shuttling between the various commanders and their troops, trying to establish rapport because if you knew them well, it was probably less likely they were going to shoot at you or maybe think twice about it. And really just trying to, to get a sense, get your antennae tuned really quickly so that what you were sending back in terms of military information was accurate because I was acutely aware that if, if I over-egged some of the reporting about what the Serbs were doing, and they were up to some bad stuff, it could be misrepresented. And the danger was that, you know, by reporting that, we could actually make a situation worse
1: than it was. So, describe what you said, it's gražda in the you know, kind of three kilometres, that's your world at that stage. You know, what, what does it look like? What's the ground like? What's the area?
2: Yeah, the terrain's pretty austere. You've got bleak limestone mountains up to about 3,000 feet above sea level, completely surrounded by Serb forces. You've got a town that's been at war for a couple of years, so there's no glass in any of the buildings. All the power is generated by dynamos in the fast-flowing river Drina to power televisions and household appliances. We arrive there and it's, it's getting cold, the winter's in and, and you know the snow down. By the time you get up onto the hills where the observation posts are with the wind chill factor you're down to the minus 20s and it's hard going, you're doing everything on foot. So communications were
0: difficult um, and it was very much a, a corporals and subalterns war therefore to keep the lads in good condition, uh, keep them focused, trained and the um, the OP commanders all had uh, very uh, specific programs that they would put the put the lads through every day, um, and, and with washing and shaving, weapon cleaning, maintenance, improving the uh, the facilities, patrolling, uh, liaison with the locals, so so that every uh, everybody, everybody w- was focused on the job rather than
2: worrying about the conditions. Within weeks of us arriving, the Serbs started to restrict the number of resupply convoys coming into Graster So no fuel, limited rations. And does
1: that include resupply for, for your own troops? Absolutely. Not, not just for the local no, population?
2: No, hum, both humanitarian aid and our own convoys. Mm. And it was just like a tightening of the ratchet. They didn't want to appear to be being too restrictive. By the same token, they didn't want us to be at our full capability when they decided to make their move. Yeah. And a little bit lots of mind games jamming on the radios convoys being held at Sarajevo for days on end and then an increase of the number of attacks on us, shooting attacks both at civilians uh, but also at us and um, and again you know you couldn't afford to be pushed around by these people because the sort of bullying mentalities if you show weakness then they're going to do a bit more and a bit more
1: and, and I guess that that then sets the tone for your entire yeah. tour yeah Is and that- it, was, it was you know
2: it, it, the pressure started to mount you know we'd taken a couple of casualties we were in danger of running out of blood supply so we we're having to give our own blood and refrigerate it as best we could ammunition was always a worry for me we could get plenty of water food we could forage up to a degree but ammunition was going to be be a real limiting factor so we had to get quite inventive as to how we got round the um the shortage of ammunition but i but i noticed in the soldiers as time went on and attacks on us increased in frequency and 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 severity it really started to to sort of play on the younger soldiers minds you know there were a lot of landmines unmarked you know we sort of knew where they were you know in early april four-man patrol of mine walked into a minefield three got nasty nasty injuries Um, And, and, you know, before you took the guys out on patrol, you'd finished your orders, you'd you'd watch them getting ready, going through their lucky routines. You know, it's a bit like a sort of dressing room for a a big rugby game. You know, it's just that every day was an international day in Garajda for young soldiers. And you could see it was starting to take its toll in terms of pressure. And we needed a release on that. And the only release they would get was when they had the ability to fight back Mm. against a, a much stronger Serb army.
1: But this was a peacekeeping operation, so fighting would have to wait, especially as it wasn't really clear what the mission was in the first place.
0: I was never actually given a mission, um, very little often than, than a, more than a one-liner in various uh, messages and directives. Um, I was often not told of developments that were going to take place. Uh, I was not told, for example, that the British government were not going to replace us until after it was announced. I was not told uh, not given really any advance warning of withdrawal, which was odd given that we were at the point of most exposure of, of British forces uh, at that time uh, and really the, the national interest was, was at stake. And so yes, um, when it came to deriving a mission, I had to analyse what information I'd been given and come up with something and, and my main effort in this was to make sure that although I might be slightly uncertain about what exactly was, was required. But my subordinates would not be. Uh, They would all have definite uh, missions and tasks and things that they they had to achieve and focus on so that uncertainty stopped with me.
2: And we came up with some tasks, a list of tasks that we thought we could achieve given our resource and the situation. We came up with four or five tasks and then the in order to of the mission was safeguard the civil population uh, and accredited UN agencies. And we, we disseminated that Gave the guys time to digest it and come back, say whether they were clear about it. And then we went nap on it. But we, we did revisit that mission. And it, the mission actually changed three or four times during the tour as the situation changed.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think it's, quite, it's it becomes quite key because eventually we get to the whole, what are you allowed to do mm. to safeguard the area? Mm, yeah. You had come up with a, five tasks that you had devised as a mission.
2: Yeah, and we also designated a main effort. The key priority, and that was the safeguarding of the of the three kilometer exclusion zone that had been put in place by the the uh, the Jimmy Carter plan, if you like. So everyone knew at the end of the day the the biggest priority and where all resource was going to go to was protecting that three ks. yeah um, and and whatever happened, we had to stop the Serbs from getting into that three k zone if they decided to make a move.
1: So now you've got um uh, a largely Bosnian Muslim population in um, Garajda, including, I assume, refugees that have found their way there from other less safe areas. And winter is coming to an end. You already alluded to the fact that everyone believed that fight would come because the fighting season, you know, it's not nice to fight in winter, so wait till summer or the weather gets better. So the situation was deteriorating. Attacks on your troops becoming more common, more severe. Were they becoming more... Intense
2: yeah more protracted and I've been quite clear with the blokes, you know one round in 20 back But then when you're getting a couple of hundred in You've got to really try and and exercise some fire control over that because we will run out of ammunition And if we haven't got ammunition, they will find out about it. Yeah, because being a UN deployment We weren't allowed to use any codes so all our radio messages and resupply messages were going out in clear and the one thing the former Yugoslav army had was a tremendous electronic warfare capability, so they would be intercepting it. We sort of tried to get around it by using Welsh speakers, because being a Welsh battalion, we had a number of North Waylands. Um and that was that was useful. But the moment we flicked a dragon's teeth, as we called it, they started jamming us. Right. We did have access to a taxat through the Joint Commission officers, so we could get messages out that way. But it was quite clear to me that Serbs would be onto the fact that we hadn't had any convoys in. We'd been fighting combat incidents. They'd have a rough idea what our first-line scales of ammunition would be. And it wasn't going to be long before they um, they realised that they were more plentifully supplied with mm. ammunition than we were.
1: And then I guess we get to May when things start to get really bad. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, throughout May... it. Um, you know the, the, the ramping up of the pressure, no convoys in. It, it was all building to something. On the 28th of May, the Serbs made their move. They hooked round to the north and took some of the observation posts, um, a Ukrainian one and two British ones um, hostage. And I was at that time at a meeting on the east bank with the Bosnian Serb liaison officer. I knew him quite well, but he was he he was um, he was giving off all kinds of alerts and signs to me and he actually said look you know if we have to come for your observation post don't worry you'll be safe your soldiers will be safe uh so i said i told him you know in no uncertain terms that we wouldn't agree to any hostages being taken left the meeting early and started moving back on foot with my um command group and as i got back to my vehicle i could hear on the battalion net that things were happening on the on the west bank and then my own company net which i'd had with me started coming to live and uh, the guys out in the observation posts were sending information that there were significant combat indicators. They were bringing up um, stretcher-bearer parties, ammunition was being forward-loaded, window frames were being knocked out, and it was pretty pretty clear that something was about to happen.
0: Phil Jones, who was commanding A Company on the left of the river, next to Richard Wesley on the right, gave me the news that uh, some of his OPs had been surrounded by a large force of Serb soldiers. There was absolutely nothing that we could do about it. You know, they were several miles and several thousand feet away from us. And so I said to Phil Wright, "Uh, don't get decisively engaged, delay and tell the lads to go with it, which they did. And they were taken prisoner, but uh, came to no harm. And I was was actually never really concerned uh, about them. I
2: knew the Serbs wouldn't dare to harm them. Got all the guys to stand to get ready. And then I moved up to where between two of the observation posts. And at that point, I just started getting contact reports in from um, from all of the OPs as the Serbs launched their attack. And ostensibly for the rest of the afternoon, we, we fought the Serbs. We got a message to the, the Bosnian army in the town that um, Serbs had crossed the line. And I was happy to uh, abandon impartiality for a period of time. But they had 6,500 weapons 8,000 troops, and I needed some of them up because there were only about 40 of us on the hills and the Serbs were attacking in waves. Mm. That message was received and the commander of the uh, of the, the brigade on my bank um, started to move his troops up. It took them about four hours to get up and take over from us, by which stage, you know, the, OP, the observation posts were in a pretty dire state because they were just Hesco bastion and ostensibly, you know, buckets full of earth and sandbags. And they were firing heavy artillery, mortars, anti-aircraft artillery in the in the horizontal mode, and it was quite clear that we weren't going to be able to hold out for much longer than four four hours max, not least because we ran out of yeah. ammunition. So eventually, after about four or five hours, the um, Bosnians got up onto the uh, the front line, took over our positions in significantly greater numbers, and they did a very good job. I just don't remember a lot of it. And my knowledge
0: of it, I've, I've pieced back together from various reports, but the OP line there, you know, uh, less, uh, about a company, was attacked by at least, I think, a brigade minus one battalion, uh, supported by some tanks. So it was never going to hold for that long. The point was to hold it for long enough for the Bosnian army to get up onto the high ground, which was the vital ground for Grasda. And And if the Serbs were up there, they could simply destroy the town. And that was where Richard, particularly with his leadership uh, and his company, held them off for a vital couple of hours, two and a half hours, giving time for the Bosnians to get into position and then break contact uh, and move back. And by the end of that time, the ground in front of that OP line was covered with uh, bodies, um, I'm sorry to say. And there were uh, some remarkable acts of individual uh, which were which were later rewarded in the honours and awards list, but there's no doubt about it that Richard Wesley's personal presence, courage, leadership were hugely instrumental in, in holding the line that day. And you know, I've got the greatest regard for all my company commanders on that mission. I think any any of them could and would have done it, but Richard was the man on the spot and, and the responsibility for that that day fell on him and he was not found wanting.
1: With the Bosnian soldiers now defending the town, Richard and his men then withdrew back into camp,
2: and for the next 28 days we lived a troglodyte existence because we were being very, very heavily shelled. Sometimes you know 500 rounds a day incoming, and um, that was quite debilitating for for the blokes. Just sort of lying there, listening to this stuff going off around you, and you know artillery is is pretty frightening. Um, so we'd stay you know in our bunkers by day. I would try to get round each bunker and talk to the guys, see how they were holding up, give them as much information as I could about what I was finding out. And then in the evenings, I would go down into the town and speak to the brigade commander who'd come back off the hill to get the latest update so that we could update the UN in Sarajevo, but also so I could update the blokes. Mm. Because I knew the fighting would have an end. It it would come to an end one way or the other. And we had to be ready to come out and see what was left of our mission and what we could actually get on with.
1: So uh, at the start, you talked about the ability and the, and the training that it takes to switch from peacekeeping to war fighting. And I guess by that stage, your men had done it on a number of occasions, but but I guess this was the big step into the full-on yeah, yeah. fight. Uh, and then the opposite of that, almost retreating, bunkering down, almost without any ability to, to respond. You know, what were you getting from the UN or the headquarters, the international community? What help were you getting from them at that stage?
2: Nothing. I mean, it was interesting. Whether they just didn't believe us, Mm. what we were sending up in our report every day, or whether they didn't want the information to get out, I, I don't know. But the international community, and I include UK in that, did not offer a great deal of assistance. There was a code word for UN airstrikes. It was called blue sword. And if a commander with troops in contact felt that he or she needed airstrikes or close air support, the code word Blue Sword could be used. I called for Blue Sword on six occasions in my time in Bosnia and I never once received an aircraft in support of me. I remember one particular day, I think we'd been pinned down for about four hours, and I was calling for Blue Sword and eventually it didn't come so we waited till dark, we crawled back, long long crawl and got back in. I went to see the operations officer and I said, what happened to Blue Sword? And he just handed me the radio log and it just said, not available. And um, I said, what do you mean not available? You know, we we rely on this. And he said, do you know what time it is in New York at the moment? It has to be sanctioned in New York. Mm. It's a Friday evening. You know, it'd be top of the intree Monday morning. And that began to sort of, you know, to to, to erode a bit of confidence. And I certainly wasn't prepared to pass that on to the troops. That would not have been helpful.
1: And and what do you think the politics were in, in that? You know, what, why isn't there someone at the end of a phone or at the end of a radio?
2: Because at the end of the day, the UN is not configured to run operations. So the UN is really important for legitimacy, impartiality, and if you like, the underpinning of operations. What is not there to do is command troops. It's, it's not structured for it. You know, it's not trained for it. And that was a lesson that we, fortunately, we learned after after Garajda when we went into Kosovo. It was a NATO-led operation with, yeah. with UN mandates. I can only think that there was a huge amount of worry that the UN was failing in Bosnia at the time. John Major offered up his position as Prime Minister to his cabinet because of the situation we were in. And the UK MOD was less than supportive at the time of my commanding Officer, who was doing a cracking job, but they just thought he was over-egging it and complaining. So we would send up, you know, busy day in Garazda, uh, 17 civilians killed, Three soldiers uh, wounded in action, 500 artillery rounds impacted in the safe area today. It would go up and then the Boz Rep, the Bosnia rep, but the whole of the theatre would come back down, Garajda, a quiet day. Somebody really didn't want the world to know what was truly happening yeah. in Garazda. And, and interestingly, this might be of interest to, to you guys in the media, is We, once the hostages had been taken and the attack had occurred, we were banned from talking to the media. We could speak to Martin Bell in Sarajevo on a weekly basis, in his trusted, balanced journalist. And then we were banned from talking to the media. So they just made it up. Not in irresponsible media terms, but it just didn't reflect what was really happening in Gorazda. And that was frustrating.
1: The British soldiers spent nearly a month hunkering down whilst the Bosnian Muslim troops fought back the Serbs. Eventually, the shelling began to ease up the local population started to emerge back into the world and were in need of supplies.
2: They were just starting to come out of their basements. You know, they were hungry. Uh, We had to improve our logistics situation. So instead of driving through central Bosnia, which was a light now with with various fights going on, um, we had to reroute it through greater Serbia and then bring it in through Visegrad in the east. So it was only on Bosnian Serb territory for about 18 Ks. And we started to get some convoys into the town and, you know, there's still shelling going on, but people were coming out of the streets, you know, they could see there was light at the end of, end of the tunnel and we were starting to get some resupplies back in.
1: And I guess, so the, the resolve of the Bosnian troops in Grazda, which held off the Serbs, I guess made them turn their attentions elsewhere and move on to what would be Srebrenica.
2: Yeah, it, I mean, it was, it was a very interesting time, you know, the Bosnian army had done really well in the town and I still had a very good relationship with my opposite number in, in the brigade. But there, there was a bit of a swagger and a bit of a strut, you know. And some of them, some of the ju- more junior commanders, didn't really see the, the need for UN. You know, we've done it ourselves. You know, they seemed to forget that we, we actually held on to their bank for four or five hours to buy them time to get up there. But, but other things were, as you say, were happening. And we, we started to pick up indicators that something was happening around Shepa and Srebrenica. Shepa had a Ukrainian company, Srebrenica had a Dutch battalion there. And having picked up some indicators that something was happening, we started to see stragglers coming over the hill into Garajda. So we got out there as quickly as we could in our vehicles, took them from the, the Bosnian army and started to t- talk to them and say, what, what's happening, where have you come from? And we did it individually, but all their tales were pretty chilling in, um, in the fact that they, they all seemed to hang together independent of one another. And uh, it transpired that Zepa and Srebrenica had both fallen, not a shot fired. You know, over the next three or four days, 8,300 men were murdered by the Bosnian Serb army in, in cattle sheds and along the roads outside Srebrenica and Jeppa.
1: The Serb forces massacre of more than 8,300 Bosniak men and boys is a genocide that remains one of the darkest hours in the history of the United Nations.
2: I genuinely believed that the Serbs would show little mercy in retaking the town. Um, they certainly would want to make sure that men of fighting age, 16 to 60, were no longer a threat to them. Yeah. And so it was, it was really important that the town did not fall into Serb hands. And I think it is testament to some young soldiers who, you know, they'd never been in combat before. Most of my soldiers had not fired their weapon in anger before Gerashta and, and I, it certainly had a
1: profound effect on them. The next problem was how to get out. The fusilier situation was being closely monitored back in the UK.
3: I'm Tim Collins, I'm a retired Army Colonel. In the mid-1990s um, I was a, a Major as the Operations Officer of 22SAS and my responsibility was for the fine planning of the potential rescue of British forces in the Garage de Pocket and in Zepka as well, a couple of different pockets and we would have carried out the operation on the ground, had to go ahead. We got to a point where the commanding officer of the uh, Wilts Fusiliers had come out and he'd come to Hereford, and he'd, I'd sat in a meeting with him, with uh, our director general Cedric Delves, uh, and my commanding officer Colonel Rupert Pritchard, and their assessment together was that the end was nigh, that it, it was all or nothing for the Serbs, and we had to, uh, what we tend to do in these occasions is we look at what's going to be the most likely case, what's the worst case and which case do we need to prepare for. And so we very much looked at both the worst case and the most likely case was that the enemy were going to make a move. And so um, we really stripped for action by that stage. The best illustration one could give was that uh, when it came to the end state, the Bosnians blinked and they realized that they couldn't afford to make that move and what's more they as an act of goodwill frankly on their part they basically put their hands up and said if you if your battalion wants to drive out you can drive out i personally had been at the ministry of defense down in the cellar in the the restricted zone on the day and we had frankly the plan was about to be executed fairly imminently aircraft and personnel were starting to move into their assembly areas to carry out the operation Uh, i was on the train back to Hereford and I think I got as far as Salisbury when my uh, cell phone rang and I was told, they're coming out, it's over. The Serbs have blinked and I thought, very sensible.
2: Getting out was always gonna be problematic because I think the Bosnian forces in the town took the view that whilst there were UN peacekeepers there, there was the opportunity for them to get airstrikes, which is what they needed if the Serbs were gonna concentrate force and come again and the, the commander of the Bosnian 81st Division in Grazda, Brigadier Barto, had sort of said to the commanding officer, you can leave, but you've got to leave all your vehicles and your weapons for us. And, and that was clearly not going to happen. You know, that's not the way British soldiers do anything. So we had a couple of plans of how to get out. One was quite highly classified, involved UK special forces flying in, us exfiltrating into the hills and flying out in Chinooks. That would mean destroying or disabling all our vehicles and only taking what ammunition and weapons we could take. And it was certainly high risk and it had a threshold of casualties tied to it when we would call for that operation. The second and favored option was to drive out with all our sort of vehicles, weapons and some national face intact. So the commanding officer brokered a deal with General Mladic and with the local commander in Bosnia that we would leave but we would leave behind a tactical air control party or some forward air controllers so that there were UN Berries, small number, but they could call in airstrikes. And an and agreement was given to that. It was also made sense because if they did need to get them out rapidly, it's easier to get five or six blokes out than it is to get you know, a battalion out. But things got quite complicated because Brigadier Bartow didn't necessarily have enough control over his people in the town. And they started to break into our camp I think probably to steal fuel, weapons. And as the tactical commander on the ground, I went and had a word with him and said, this has to stop. You're sending armed people into, into, my, into our camp. And I don't think he did anything about it. And We ended up having a firefight with some people armed coming into the camp. We ended up killing two or three of them, the very people we'd gone in to defend. Really, really uh, difficult. And we managed to get a couple of convoys out of the town. It was just my convoy with the commanding officer was the last one. It was always going to be tricky. And we were getting ready to go when the markets area of Sarajevo was very heavily shelled. A number of civilian casualties. And the international community was crying out to find out where these mortars had been fired from. And all the evidence was pointing at the Serbs. And the difficulty was for General Smith in Sarajevo is that he could only sort of keep the lid on that can of worms for so long. Because if airstrikes were then put in on the Serbs, the Serbs would close off our corridor we would be marooned in Garajna for goodness knows how long. So basically, bold decision made by Rupert Smith. He said, got on the radio, he said, have you got all your fusiliers ready? I said, yep. He said, move now. And we drove out through the Serb lines, across the border and into Serbia, where we unloaded and went to Belgrade and then watched the biggest air package I've ever seen heading down towards Gharazna. So we managed to get out with all our weapons and, and all our people. We didn't get our interpreters out which is quite topical given what's happening at the moment. And I'm to blame for that because um, commanding officer got the company commanders together and said, I'm planning to take our interpreters and their children out with us. Um, for their safety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if anyone doesn't agree with that, they have the right to veto. One veto and we don't do it. And I'm afraid I stuck my, I stuck my hand up and I said, no, we, we shouldn't be doing this. And the two reasons are, firstly, with the UN, we can't be seen to do this. It's undermining the reputation of the UN, smuggling people across borders. The second thing is that I know when we drive out of here, before we cross the border into Serbia, we are going to be searched. And if they find our female interpreters and their children, they will be led away, and there is nothing we can do about it. The others didn't agree with me. The commander of the SAS team did agree with me. And the commander said, OK, they don't come. And I, I then had to face some pretty, pretty unpleasant scenes with the interpreters, as you can imagine. We were leaving, they were going to be left behind. And it was pretty horrible, actually. But it was vindicated, because when we drove out, we got to the border, they stripped our vehicles to pieces. They searched every nook and cranny, and they would have found our female interpreters. And I knew, because they were my interpreters, whenever we went across, you know, the Serb soldiers were vilely abusive. They told exactly what they were going to do to them if they ever got them alone. So... You know, I don't feel any guilt about it. It just wasn't a very nice decision to have to make. But, you know, Groucho didn't fall. Most of them left and, um, you know, they were all safe. Those that wanted to leave did leave afterwards through the corridor. So it wasn't as, as bad as they thought it was going to be. Not a difficult decision for me, but a, but a nasty one.
1: On their return to the UK, the battalion was awarded the largest number of peacetime medals since the Korean War. Numerous soldiers were mentioned in dispatches. Three military crosses were awarded, and the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Riley, received a distinguished service order. But let's not forget the award of one conspicuous gallantry cross.
0: Yeah, well, Colossan Pete Humphreys uh, was awarded it. And I kicked myself afterwards because really, I should have written Humphreys up for a Victoria cross. Um, he'll, he'll probably be very embarrassed to hear me say this, but, but it should have been. And Richard should probably have had a CGC, and there should have been at least a couple of other, other,
2: other MCs. Carousel Pete Humphreys, who was commanding observation post number one on my bank, probably saved a town that afternoon. But he showed remarkable restraint. So he was on the radio to me saying, All "Right, contact, we're returning fire. And I was trying to move up some of our vehicles to, to give him some support. And then I I lost him on the radio. It was really frustrating. Actually, what had happened, he was fed up with me talking to him. So he'd just taken his earpiece out to think. And he'd held on to the observation post for as long as he could. And he dropped a number of Serbs, you know, uh, as they tried to to capture his position. And then he started to move half of his team back whilst he stayed and provide covering fire. And then he moved back and they surprised two parties of Serbs that were trying to get round the back of them. Uh, sort of hooking round so he i mean he could quite clearly have just shot and killed them but he gave him the opportunity to put their weapons down he took their weapons off and threw them down a ravine sent them back the way he'd they, come you know which i thought showed tremendous presence at the time he then took his men back through a minefield set up a snap ambush hit another lot of serbs that were following him up and then made his way down to join me at the sort of the, the rendezvous point. And I think that you know, him holding for that length of time and showing that restraint was quite remarkable. His judgment, his command and his courage were, were pretty outstanding and thoroughly deserved his award. Interestingly, it was the second award of the Conspicuous Gallantry Cross. The first one had gone to Corporal Mills from the Duke of Wellington's regiment within about 100 metres of where Pete got his. Right. So that was ironic. That was certainly um, um, a real standout moment. The other one really was from Corporal Dave Parry, who'd been surrounded very early on and obviously decided that 300 sandbags wasn't worth dying for. So, but he'd hidden a radio in his smock and he was able to, until he went out of range, to keep me updated of what was happening. And um, they were led off by the Serbs and they had to crawl a long way because there were still massive gunfights going on around him. And, but he, he refused to let the Serbs give any orders to his men so it all comes through me and he showed absolute tremendous leadership under fire as, uh, as he was led away
3: to become a hostage and chained to some radio, radar station. The, the tally of medals for the battalion as a whole, the commanding officer got a distinguished service order and a couple of MCs and it was a recognition of the... Great job that they'd done, the courage that they'd shown, the stoicism they'd shown in the face of the provocation, and they'd stuck it out, even though it wasn't exactly what rocks drift, but on the other hand, had it gone to war fighting, we know what the, the standard was there. We, we saw the horrific outcome in Srebrenica. It would have been Srebrenica, but with the UN fighting, and probably every single one of the troops would have fought and become a casualty, if not killed, in that event, because once started, the Serbs would unlikely have to pull back. So they literally stared at obliteration in the face and they stared it down.
2: When you've got an enemy that will quite happily in an afternoon shoot down re-entrance of children leaving school. Your mission says safeguard the civil population as best you can. Your rules of engagement say actually they're not shooting at you so you can't return fire and they're outside the three kilometre exclusion zone. So you've got to be a little inventive. So you know you need to push some vehicles down to the school so that they're between the origin of Serb fire and the school. So if they're shooting at the children, they're shooting at you. And that means that you can actually suppress them and stop them from hurting the children. And that's the sort of thing that we had to, to employ to make sure that we could do our job, but not
1: end up breaking international law. Uh, but also you're fulfilling your mission, yeah. of in, in protecting the yeah, population. Protect the
2: civil population. Yeah. And if that means that I've got to put, put myself in the, a, in the way, you know, I'll make it as safe as I can. I can't guarantee it, but we've got to stop this behavior. And the only way we can do it really is putting ourselves in between them and and their targets and I the boys didn't flinch at that they would rather have taken a bit of risk on that than have to pick another child up that had just been shot for a bit of sport you know yeah. by a serb sniper
1: and then i guess um my last question again because i've read read your view on it um and you have written about talking to your men from that time and every single one of them has advocated that what they did was worth it and I just wanted to hear your view, you know, was the hardship, the endurance that you went through, was it worth it?
2: I think it was really, it was very formative for me because, you know, for 15 years, I'd been a sort of stand-in actor and here we were on stage now. It was our opportunity to make a difference. I managed to bring all of my soldiers back alive, which I'm staggered by, yeah, never managed it since. Although some of them were wounded, and at the end of the day, you know, 8,300 people did not die on my watch. Was it hard? Yes.
1: Was it worth it? Absolutely. Great. And then you were recognised yourself with the military cross.
2: It bloke's medal. They always give it to the Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely believe that as a company award, you know, everyone in B Company, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, that was on Op Grapple 2, deserves to wear that as much as I do. And um, yeah, it's a piece of jewellery really, but it's theirs. It's the company's, not mine.
3: I know Richard very well and um, I think that that experience was what you would expect, but it, it went on to reinforce a, a career and he went on to lead the, the Western Sherwood Foresters as an active service in Afghanistan for which he, he received the OBE. Um, so he's one of our uh, more decorated officers and and, and rightly so um, because it was the right man at the right place and we're lucky. Would every single company commander have done the same? The likelihood is not, I mean, we'd like to think so, but we were lucky we had the right man the right place. He was
0: young for a company commander, he was actually still a captain, not a major. Very tough, very sporty, strong family man, committed to his family, very committed to the regiment as well, great sense of humour, always good company and very well liked by the other officers and and, and by the NCOs and and soldiers as well. I, I I don't think anyone ever had a bad word for him and quite right too.
1: I wanted to read out a short extract from your citation. An extract from the citation of Major Richard Wesley, Military Cross. It was his company which formed the rearguard on the last day. His personal example and leadership over a prolonged period and in the face of unprecedented difficulties, as well as his disregard for danger, were key factors throughout the operation. That just sums up a little bit of the fact that, you know, you you were the guys who stayed behind and provided the rear guard and then left and I guess put yourselves at more risk in a very touchy situation. It's doing our job.
2: That's what the blokes would say. just did our job and did it the best we could. So, um, and I'm very grateful for their efforts because uh, I'll never be able to thank them enough nor will the people of Garage to be able to thank them enough for what they did for that town.
0: Tea and Medals is written and produced by Darren Coventry and Josella Waldron, edited by Andy Prada, with sound design by Terry Wilson. Original music is by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths, with thanks to Colonel Richard Wesley, OBE MC, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, CBDSO, and Colonel Tim Collins, OBE.
1: The government has now decided. decided
3: in an exclusive new BFBS podcast
1: that a large task
2: force will sail as soon as preparations are complete.
3: Experience the 1982 Falklands conflict through the eyes of those who were there at the time. This is serious. We started action stations training, gun training. And the people that live and serve there now. See those ships just burning away, not memory will never leave me. Falklands 82. Stories from the South Atlantic. Hear new episodes every Tuesday. Find it at bfbs.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.